couple of weeks ago, I was out of the pulpit because I was in uh, Sitka, Alaska, where my mother lives, and I was up there visiting her. She had been named Woman of the Year in this little town on an island off the coast of Alaska. And so I and my siblings uh, went up there to, I don't know, to, to be with her and to congratulate her. This is the first time that all four of us, all four of the siblings had been together in one place in 20 years. We're not a very uh, tightly knit family. I was not raised by my mother. I was raised by my father. And so my primary understanding of parenting is is the, the man's point of view. Um, I had a stepmother uh, as I was uh, as I was growing up and so my relationship with my mother has been complicated the way a lot of people's relationships with their mother is complicated uh one of the great blessings in my life uh has been to have met and married Ava and to have her be the mother of my kids and so now my kids have two kinds of parents they've got me and then they've got their mother and somehow in, in all of that, um, the psychological repercussions are not too great, right? So it's working out. Calvin was over last night and we were talking about, you know, what kind of therapy he would need to recover from his parenting. Um, but this morning I just wanted to take a moment to uh, thank God uh, for the mothers in our lives and to uh, pray God's blessing upon those of us who are our mothers and who mother us in many ways. So let's join our hearts together in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we come to you on this Mother's Day, and we give you thanks for all of those people in our lives who possess the soul of a mother. We give you thanks and we celebrate with those in our congregation who have given birth this year. We give thanks and we wait eagerly with those in our church who are expecting a child this year. We give thanks and we pray for all mothers who are in the trenches with little ones every day who wear the badge of food stains and weary bodies. We pray for and we mourn with those who have lost children through accident, sickness, miscarriage, estrangement. We pray for and walk beside those who tread the hard path of infertility fraught with pokes and prods and tears and disappointments. Forgive us when we say foolish things, for we certainly do not mean to make this harder than it is. We give you thanks for foster moms, mentor moms, spiritual moms. This world is so desperate for their care. We give you thanks for and celebrate with mothers who have warm and close relationships with their children. And we pray for and sit with those mothers who have disappointment, heartache, and distance from their children. We pray for and we grieve for all children who have lost their mothers. And we pray for and acknowledge the experience of children who have suffered at the hands of their mothers. We pray for those who are single and yet long to be married, to be mothering their own children. We pray for those who are step-parents and who walk a complex path. We pray for and we grieve with those who 
envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren and yet that dream has not been realized. We pray for and grieve with and rejoice alongside of those who will have emptier nests in this upcoming year. We pray for those who have placed children up for adoption. We ask that you would bless them for their selflessness and comfort them as they hold that child in their heart. Oh God, on this Mother's Day, we pray that you help us walk with all mothers, for mothering is not for the faint of heart. And on this day, we have real warriors in our midst. We ask that we might mother our children even as you, God, watch over us like a mother hen, protecting us under the shadow of your wings. May our family relationships reflect godly love, and may you be honored by the care that we take one for another. These favors we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I will read from verse 27 through verse 36. John 12, 27 through 36. <clears throat> Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons and daughters of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed And hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would be present with us this morning. That your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds. Even as your Holy Spirit inspired these words of scripture. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? That's what the crowd asks Jesus in our reading this morning from the Gospel of John. To be lifted up, hupsothenai in Greek, is a euphemism to uh, die by crucifixion. 
In cowboy movies, the sheriff points at the cattle rustler and says to the deputies, String them up, boys. Lift them up. String them up. Two ways of talking about the grim business of execution. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? The crowd wants to know. Jesus has seen the cross in his future, and in his very last public speech before he dies, Jesus gives some hints to the crowd about what's coming. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross has always been the symbol of our faith. The cross, this cruel instrument of torture and execution, the cross has always been the symbol of our faith because the crux of our faith, if you will permit me to make a pun in Latin, is what happens at the cross. Yes, the cross of Calvary has an historical, physical, and psychological reality, Contrary to what the Quran says, Jesus was truly and physically crucified outside of the walls of Jerusalem and he died a real death in the natural world. But in addition to those natural effects, there were also some supernatural effects conducted or made to happen at the cross. And... Christianity is an empty shell if we don't understand that supernatural business. Yes, the cross was an historical, physical, and psychological reality, but it was so much more than that. So today's sermon will deal with the supernatural effects of the cross. And I want you to stay tuned in to get hold of what I'm saying, because without this crux of the faith, Christianity is a sham and a shell. If we fail to understand the cross supernaturally, we fail to understand Jesus, and we fail to understand the gospel. Our reading from the Gospel of John talks about several effects of the cross, It talks about the way the cross affects God himself, Jesus and the Father. It talks about the way the cross affects the world, both those who follow Jesus and those who reject Jesus. And so let's begin by spending a little time thinking about the effects of the cross. Our passage begins with Jesus saying, now my soul is troubled. Jesus sees the cross coming. He knows that he will be mocked and beaten and stripped and nailed to a cross to die in public on the side of a road while people walk by and wag their heads. That's an historical, physical reality that Jesus foresees. And so, yeah, his soul is troubled by what he knows is coming his way. I mean, how do you face the horror of your own death, and in this case, a cruel and hateful, tortured death? How do you face your own death without being troubled? These kinds of horrific public executions have become commonplace in the territory controlled by the Islamic State and by the Taliban. Here in this country, we execute people out of public view. 
in a much more sanitized and clinical way. But the psychological horror has to be the same. Knowing that your life will be ripped from you by people who want to obliterate you. So, sure, Jesus is troubled. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Suke is the word in Greek for soul. Psyche is the word that we have in English. Jesus has a human soul. His soul was just like yours. And Jesus was psychologically distressed when he foresaw the coming of the cross. One of the errors that emerged in the early church was this idea that Jesus was not really human, but that he was just God masquerading in an empty human shell like a hand stuck up inside of a puppet. But when Jesus talks about his soul being troubled, we know that he was human inside and out, physically and psychologically. Yes, he was also God, but let's never lose sight of his humanity and his very real human suffering, both body and soul. So one of the effects of the coming cross is that the soul of Jesus is troubled. This is a psychological effect. But there were also supernatural effects as well. They are, number one, the abandonment of Jesus by the Father. Number two, the glory of the Father. And number three, the atonement of human sin. These three effects don't happen at a visible, natural level. They are supernatural. They are seen with the eyes of faith. So let's begin with the abandonment of Jesus. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. Jesus is psychologically upset by the prospect of his impending torture and death. A perfectly natural response to an unimaginable horror. But in fact... There is a terror even beyond the physical torture and death that Jesus had to face. And that was the terror of supernatural abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out from the cross. He's quoting Psalm 22 where the psalmist says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my anguish. We call this the cry of dereliction. An anguished cry of being totally abandoned by the one person, Almighty God, who it would seem would never leave us. All the more terrifying. For Jesus, who from all eternity was connected with the Father, never for a moment absent from his presence. But now, in that moment on the cross, with the weight of the sin of the world hanging on him, God does turn away. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And so, God averts his gaze, even from his own beloved Son. The prospect of that dereliction, which Jesus foresaw, is what sends the supernatural shiver of terror through his soul. And rightly so. 
It should send a shiver of terror through our souls as well because there is no icy death like abandonment by God. And that's what the future holds for those who dare stand before God without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If we stand before God in our sin and filth, God will turn away. He will not look at us. He will tell us to get out of his sight. Jesus himself describes this scene in Matthew 7, 23, where God will say, quote, I never knew you. Depart from me. This supernatural abandonment is the horror of hell. Hebrews 9, 27 says, people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, which is why we need to get right with God Before we die. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes the day of judgment. He begins by saying, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious thrones. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on His left. The destinies of these two groups of people are eternally separated. And that is in spite of the fact that the goats plead with the judge. Their plea falls on deaf ears. Jesus closes his description of the day of judgment by saying that the goats, those who have not followed Christ, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, will go away to eternal life. Abandonment is the first supernatural effect of the cross. The second supernatural effect of the cross is the glory of God. Jesus says, my heart, my soul is troubled. And then he asks, should I ask the Father to save me from this hour? And he answers his own question by saying, Father, glorify your name. In other words, this hour is coming and it is a supernatural terror for Jesus, but it will bring glory to the Father. And here's how the cross brings glory to God. In the cross, the justice and the mercy of God are linked and the fullness of God's holiness is displayed. Some people demand justice. They sport bumper stickers and t-shirts that proclaim no justice, no peace. They want the letter of the law to be enforced. They want to see consequences for sin. They want to see injustice punished. They have no patience for mercy and forgiveness because they think that mercy means that justice is denied. And, on the other hand, some people advocate for mercy. They want to see the law relaxed or ignored they want to be exempted from the consequences of sin. They want to, they want to pass when it comes to keeping the law. They can't stomach justice because they suspect that justice will crush them. And they think that justice leaves no room for mercy. And so it can seem that justice and mercy are at odds. But in the cross, God's justice and God's mercy are equally affirmed. In the gospel, God's justice and God's mercy meet. God's justice is expressed in God's law. 
A perfect rule for how we should live. A rule which encourages life and beauty and security and health and love. We, however, regularly and repeatedly and relentlessly ignore and violate God's law. We are selfish and hateful and cruel. And all around us we leave people wounded and injured by our sin. Because God loves his creation, God hates sin which mars and destroys his creation. And so God's law must be upheld lest his love for creation be dishonored. Sin must be punished or God's law becomes a joke. At the cross, God's love is upheld and sin is punished. At the cross, Jesus takes on himself the sins of all the redeemed of all time and the demands of God's law are met for those who are in Christ. On the other side of the equation... God's mercy grows up out of his own loving nature and his attachment to us as our creator. God is both our creator and our father and he loves us. He's crazy about us. And when he sees us in trouble, when he sees what a mess our sin has gotten us into, his fatherly love for us expresses itself in mercy. The law of God is unshakable. And the demands for justice and the law's demand for justice in the face of sin is inexorable. Sin will be punished. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And those wages will be paid, either by us or by Jesus. So God in his mercy pays the price of the sin of his own children. He bears the horrible cost of our willful defiance. In the cross, the depth of his mercy is revealed because God himself bears the penalty for our sins. The penalty upholds the majesty of the law, but the penalty is laid on Jesus' back rather than our own, which demonstrates God's love and mercy for his own children. So the cross produces trouble and terror in the soul of Jesus, And it brings glory to God, letting his justice and mercy shine with greater clarity. Those are the effects of the cross on God himself. Let's now talk about the effects of the cross on the world. In verse 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then in verse 32, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Here we see two seemingly contrary effects of the cross. First, by the cross, the world is judged and the ruler of the world is cast out. And second, by the cross, Jesus draws all kinds of people to himself. The cross both attracts and it repels. It always has. For some, the cross is a sign of hope and a refuge. And for others, the cross is an offense and a mockery. Though it looks like Satan wins when Christ is crucified, in fact, the cross is an eternal indictment against the ruler of this world and against all who serve him. The fact that the church has adopted the cross, the very instrument used to torture and kill Jesus. The fact that the church has adopted the cross as its own symbol 
as its sign of victory is a rich irony and a grand inversion. Joseph speaking to his brothers who had wanted to kill him, who sold him into slavery. Joseph, upon seeing his brothers after the passage of many years, says to them, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. The cross that Satan thought would destroy the Son of God turned out to be the salvation of God's people. The cross which was erected in hate and contempt became a universal sign of love and forgiveness. Weakness overcame strength and death turned into life. Imagine how surprised Satan was when Jesus rose from the dead. Now let me talk about the final supernatural effect of the cross. It is something that we call the atonement. This word atonement is unusual in English. It actually was invented. It was created. This word was created by an early translator of the English Bible to capture the meaning of the Greek word katalaso. There was no word in English to translate the concept, so the translator invented atonement, which if you pull it apart, you can see it means at one meant, at one meant. The idea is, is that two parties who were separated are now put back together. They are now at one. Later translations use the word reconciliation and reconciled to capture this idea. The final supernatural effect of the cross is atonement or reconciliation. And the way this is done is through something that we call the double exchange. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we read earlier in the service, the Apostle Paul writes, For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of Christ. That's the double exchange which atones for our sin and reconciles us to God the Father. Jesus, who is perfectly sinless, takes on our sin. He becomes sin for us. And we, who were perfectly sinful, are given the righteousness of Christ. Jesus takes our sin and it is nailed to the cross. At the cross, the penalty of sin is paid. And there at the cross, our sin remains, never to haunt us. Or trouble us again. And while our sin is left at the cross, Jesus places on our shoulders, like a spotless robe, his own mantle of righteousness. So in the eyes of God, we are perfectly righteous. When God looks at us, he sees his own son. He sees us as adopted sons and daughters clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. A double exchange. Our sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. It is by this double exchange that God reconciles the world to himself. Sin is what divides humanity from God. And there is no 12-step program to fix sin. There is no self-help scheme that will make us righteous in the eyes of God. God reconciles the world to himself through the cross. At the cross, the mercy of God is displayed. God himself freely bears the penalty for our sins in his own body. And in the double exchange, 
The sin which stands between us and God is dealt with and we are reconciled with God. Christ's abandonment guarantees that we need not be abandoned. Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. What should our response be to the lifting up of Christ? The first step is that we ought to recognize that we have a problem. A problem called sin. A problem which causes us to be estranged from God. Sin is a barrier between us and God and we cannot fix that problem by ourselves. And if that sin is not dealt with one day, we will be eternally separated from God. So step one is to recognize that we have a problem. We can't fix a problem if we deny that it exists. And the second step is to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, that He lived a perfect, sinless life, and that His death on the cross atones for the sins of those who place their trust in Jesus. By faith in Jesus, our sins are left at the cross. By faith in Jesus, we receive the full righteousness of God. By faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God and adopted as sons and daughters for all eternity. So, here's God's supernatural call to us this morning. Let us take a look at ourselves in the light of God's law. Let us see that we fall short of God's standard. Let us recognize that the wages of that falling short is death. And then let us turn our gaze to the cross of Christ where Jesus took our place bearing in his body the punishment for our sins, affecting a double exchange, taking our sins and giving us his righteousness so that we might be reconciled with God and enjoy him for all eternity. To the glory of God who made such wonderful things possible. Let us pray. Almighty God, for your justice, we honor you. And for your mercy, we thank you. And for your willing sacrifice, we worship you. Lord Jesus, this day be our Savior. Be the substitute for us on that cross. May your death atone for our sins and may we be reconciled to the Father. This we pray in your powerful name. Amen.